Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to lesson three of our series, Can We Talk?, where we've been talking about intentional bias, uh, prejudice, racism in America, what we see being played out on our streets, and what is our role as Christians, as a church, as a group of God's people? What's our role into making sure that there is freedom, justice, and equality for everyone? And so in the first week, we began to get God's vision for what that was and what it looked like and how he wanted men from every tongue and tribe and nation and people and race all over the world in heaven. And Jesus prayed, God, I pray that everyone on earth would become one so that they'll know you and I are one and that you sent me. And then last week, we started talking about Micah chapter six, verse eight. What is God's blueprint for how that happens? And he said, there are three things that we need to act justly, that we need to make sure as Christians that we are fighting for people who do not have a fair shake in this world. And so when anytime you see oppression, God said, I want you running after that. Amos chapter five, verse 24. I want to see a mighty flood of justice in the world. And so he calls us to do that. Number two, act in kindness. Everything should be done out of love. And then number three, walk humbly with God, everyone submitting to each other. So I want to show you that again today in what I believe to be, what, what, what is widely known to be one of the most influential pieces of literature ever written on the subject of how to handle slavery issues. But before we open up to the small letter of Philemon, I want to give a little background and I want to talk a little bit just so that we can get a good history of how all of this takes place and the role that this small letter played all the way through the process. This really began back in Genesis chapter 9 when you had the flood and after Noah and his family came out of the flood and there was no one on the face of the earth, his three sons were given land and they were gonna go and populate all of the earth from that point forward. Well, there was this moment when, after they came out of the ark, Noah was celebrating God and offering up sacrifices and telling him thank you for what he had done. And in that process, he had too much to drink, too much wine, and he passed out. His son, Ham, apparently went into his tent and did something. We don't know exactly what it was. The Bible says that he saw his father naked, but the Bible goes to great lengths to delicately talk about or not talk about subjects that are really meant to be private. And whatever it was, when Noah woke up, the Bible says he knew what Ham did to him. Whatever it was, it was so bad his father cursed him and he said, you're gonna be a servant from now on. You're gonna serve your brothers and you're gonna be a servant of all servants. And Ham and his descendants, his son Cush, his son Canaan, and his family, those descendants inhabited Africa. And so that verse of scripture was meant to justify slavery all over the earth. It was a, a, like a biblical version of this is why it's okay to have slaves. However, although the interpretation was not widespread in Christianity, it was used by the slave trade to justify slavery. The link 
between Ham and Africans is not biblical in origin. And I do have to say that, yes, it's true. It happened from the European nations. It happened from Islam. But we know it also happened in Christianity. Christians were some of the biggest uh, offense to slavery as well as some of the ones who wanted to help bring about the end of slavery. And so all the way through the centuries, march on into the beginning of America. It was not until 1688 in Germantown, Pennsylvania, that the very first protest against slavery was made. Four men, they were Quakers in Pennsylvania, and they wrote this right here, which was a protest saying that it is not right for one human being to own another human being and started a movement. People started talking about it. They started saying we should let slaves go free. It is not right. And it continued to grow until the beginning of what was the Enlightenment period, 1750 through 1789. All these Enlightenment philosophers that came from Europe and came over into America, the whole thought process of the use of logic and reason to solve all of human problems, which as we know as Christians, it's not logic and reason, it's God who's gonna solve all the problems. And the Great Awakening happened, started in 1730. But out of this philosophy, they were saying, yes, no king has a divine right to stay as a king and control people. And a lot of good things came out of that in our government. The separation of powers, three legislative branches, uh, the Bill of Rights, uh, a lot of the things that we have, the, the pursuit of life and liberty and the, the pursuit of happiness, all of these things which were really, really good things, including they said no one should be a slave. In fact, one of the quotes that they had was, all of us should be free, even though all of us are bound by chains. And what they were saying is, there should be freedom for everyone. However, they did not do anything. It was in the Great Awakening in 1730, moved by Edwards and Whitefield, that the Christians got involved and started becoming activists to end slavery. And they preached not only in their churches, but they would preach in the city squares and they would preach at city town hall meetings. And they started gaining a lot of momentum and people started going to those churches. They were flocking to this message that there should be equality for all and liberty and justice for all should not just be something that we quote in front of a game, but it should be true among all people. And so they started flocking to that. And, and as they did, things started to change and, and the abolition movement started. And it might've been around 1760, we're really unclear, but all of these meetings started happening in all of these different cities. And they started talking about, we should abolish slavery. No one should own anybody else. And it picked up a lot of momentum and it picked up a lot of speed. And then all of a sudden, the American Revolution War happened. And in that war, there were a lot of slaves that began to fight with, you know, just Americans and the nation to win our freedom. And out of that, people said, you fought with us to win our freedom. We should help fight for you to win yours. 
And so the second great awakening started happening. And as people started coming back to church, the, these church activists began to say there, there should not be any slavery. And temperance movements, including, uh, the, they called it the evils of alcohol on the minds of people. Women's rights, women should vote, women should have voice, and universal suffrage among all those that were poor. Equal rights, and people in America love that message. And the churches grew like never before, quadruple the size of the way they were before. Of the 78 universities before 1840, most all of them were started by religious churches and groups, and clergymen served on the boards of most every one of those universities. And then, as time would have it, people were committed to it, saying that we should do more, and people were saying, well, maybe we shouldn't do as much. And people started arguing. People started taking sides. And churches started to split. And cities and communities. And the nation started to split on issues like slavery. And it led to the Civil War. And it's really amazing all of the things that began to happen. I have to tell you, in my own family, the Hazlip family, we come from Kentucky. And in Kentucky, there was a time when my father and my grandfather wanted me to know how important it was that there are equal rights for everybody. And they wanted to make sure that there was no prejudice in me. And so my father had my grandfather to walk me down Hazlip Row. And so right above Bowling Green, Kentucky, up in the hills, there's a place called Asphalt, Kentucky. And you would drive by a little white church building where our family all met and started that church. And, and then you keep going over the hill about a quarter, maybe a half of a mile, and there's a cemetery on the left. And you can walk down and there are just rows of Hazlips who have passed away. And it has their dates and their names. One of the saddest stories to me was these brothers who right before the Civil War decided that we're going to go to war and we're going to fight for what's right. But they took sides. One brother said, I'm going to fight for the North. The other brother said, I'm going to fight for the South. They argued about it all the way down the hill and to the river. On one side of the river, they were signing up people to go to fight for the North. On the other side of the river, the South. And the brother who said he was going to go fight for the South, the brother got so mad that as he was getting into the river, he shot him in the back and watched his brother's body float down the river. And my grandfather took me to that spot and showed me our history and what can happen to a family and what can happen to a nation that does no longer want to honor the things of God and the equal freedom for everybody. And the Civil War happened, and in 1863, Abraham Lincoln helped write the Emancipation Proclamation that no one should be a slave owned by another human being. And in 1865, we finally had the end of the Civil War, and a law was passed to end slavery. As people started going home and started trying to put their lives back together, there were those who tried to say, okay, how did this start? And what role did Christianity play in it? And in our nation, there became a big move to stamp out the voice of Christianity. 
because they said all of this started in churches and churches started to split. Then it got into government and there should now be separation of church and state. There should not be a way that all of this Christianity voice begins to shape law and decisions. And so this move to stamp out the voice of Christians, they said these Christians are wild and they are a threat to our democracy. They're trying to shut down caverns. They're trying to shut down carriage homes and other shops so that everybody goes to worship on Sunday. And next thing you know, there was a war on Christianity and they're trying to destroy the Christian voice and pretty much we've let them. And so David Horowitz, who is a Jew, said, that this book exposes the tolerance of many atheists toward those who believe in God. And he said, as a Jewish agnostic, I think it's imperative that disbelievers not demonize believers and that believers not demonize disbelievers. Alan Dershowitz, another Jew. And so there is this war to stamp out the voice of Christianity. And yet, all the way from the beginning of the debate until today, there has been one widely considered the most important piece of literature ever written to shape the mind of those on the issue of slavery was this small little letter by Paul that he wrote to Philemon. And out of this very short document comes the standard by which we should see this whole entire issue. And nothing has been more important than this little letter that Paul wrote. It's a letter that he wrote to his friend Philemon. Paul was living, uh, actually he was in prison, and Philemon was living in Colossae. And he had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus ran away because he wasn't being treated very well. And Paul wrote to Philemon saying, this is how you should handle this situation. And so, Philemon, verse one. This letter from Paul, a prisoner for preaching the good news about Jesus Christ and from our brother Timothy. I am writing to Philemon, our brother and co-worker, and to our sister, Amphia. More than likely, it was uh, the wife of Philemon. And to our fellow soldier, Archippus, who was probably their son, also studying to be in ministry, and to the church that meets in your house. May God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So Paul is saying, hey Philemon, grace and peace to you. I know you're a church leader. I know the, the, the church meets in your home. And so I'm just sending my greetings to you and your wife and your son and to all the brethren there. Now, remember, Paul is in prison. He's either in prison in Ephesus or in Rome, we're really unsure. But, but Philemon was in Colossae. Now from Colossae to Ephesus, 120 miles. You know, you could walk that in eight to 10 days, not a big deal. But if he were over in Rome, now that's a big deal. Why is this a big deal? Well, because Onesimus, who was his slave, made the trip to go see Paul. And either it was a 120 mile trip or an almost 1,200 mile trip. And so Paul continues. 
I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. Pause. Paul is saying, I hear that you love all of the Christians there very well. And that's a great thing. And I am praying that you will, look at this, put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things you have in Christ. I'm about to challenge you with a new action, something that you're not doing very well. You are doing very well loving all of God's people. In fact, he says it again. Your love has given me you know, much joy and comfort. My brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. Do you see what he's saying? You've been wonderful to me and you've been wonderful to God's people, but that's why I'm boldly asking a favor for you, you know, from you. And I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing for you to do. Uh, Philemon, I'm about to challenge you with something and I'm gonna ask you, and I'm asking you as a favor. I could demand it because what I'm about to share with you is right from a godly perspective in the name of Jesus. But I'm really wanting you to do it because I love you. And I prefer to simply ask you, consider this as a request for me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Jesus Christ. I certainly can relate to the old man part. But now he's got him set up and he's even going to come back and say this again. Now look, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. Now, when Philemon first read this, he's like, what? Onesimus is with you? He ran away from me. He was my slave and he's gone. More than likely, he also stole from Philemon. And for the first time, now, Philemon finds out where his slave is. Now, just pause just for a second. Onesimus ran away because he was not being treated very well. He watched Philemon treat very well some people, but he did not treat him well. And Paul is challenging him on it. But instead of Onesimus just running away, he ran to Philemon's best friend, Paul. And he's like, Paul, I need your help. To me, this shows that Onesimus really had a good heart and really wanted to do the right thing, but was struggling because of the way he was being treated. And so Paul says, I'm going to appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. Treat him the way you treat everybody else. And he continues, I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been much of use to you in the past, but now he's very useful to both of us and I am sending him back to you and with him comes my own heart. So Paul is saying, you know what, Philemon? While he's been with me, I led him to the Lord. He has now become a Christian. If you, he's almost saying, if you had treated him differently, if you had have seen him like a child of God, you would have treated him differently and he would already be a Christian. But you were unkind to him. But since he's been with me, I have become his father in the faith. I led him to the Lord and I'm asking him to go back and do what is right with you. He continues. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news and he would have helped me on your behalf. 
but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. This scene, it seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. Two really important things. I don't want to force you to do this. I could force you to do it. I don't want to force you to do this. This is something you need to do willingly. And as your pastor, I'm saying there are some things that we really need to be doing in our community that is right. And I'm not going to, or our elders are not going to say, we're going to force our church to go do something for social justice or in the name of treating everybody equally. But we should have a willing spirit that we, like all these Christian before us should say the church should be the one to make the biggest difference in our nation as it comes to the equality of how everybody is treated. And then he says, and we shouldn't look at it from a Philemon. This is not a temporary situation with a slave. I'm talking to you about viewing people through the eyes of eternity. God wants everybody in heaven from every nation, every tribe, every tongue view him in a forever in you know way not just a temporary way and he continues he is no longer like a slave to you he is more than a slave he is a beloved brother i want you now to walk together as brothers in the lord especially to me now he will mean much more to you because as a man and a brother in the lord i'm sending him back i know he wasn't much help to you I know he probably hurt you. He probably stole from you, but I'm sending him back. He wants to make it right. But when he comes back, I'm asking you not to see him as a slave or treat him as a slave. You treat him as your brother in the Lord. And he, it wants to see you as his brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. And then look how passive aggressive Paul gets. I, Paul, write this with my own hand and I'll repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Right, Paul? He did so well up until that point. But now he's like, listen, I want you to do this as a favor. And I'm not even going to throw in your face that you owe me your very soul. So Paul's a little passive aggressive. But Paul is really fighting here. He's like... Before I wrote this letter, you had a slave and you did not treat him the way you treat everybody else. And it was wrong. And he ran away from you, yes. But instead of being mad at him, you should see that he's only calling you to do the right thing and treat everybody well. And he's going to come back and make right his wrong to you. So everybody needs to change in what they did so that we can have a better relationship moving forward. Did it work? Did Onesimus go back? Well, not only did Onesimus go back, but history records that Onesimus was received by Philemon as a brother in the Lord, treated very differently from then on, and then set free to go and preach the good news himself. And, and Christian history records that he had such a big impact everywhere he preached that he became a bishop in Ephesus and was later, because he was such a threat to the government as a Christian, he was martyred 
in the name of Jesus. And it said, however, he went from being a slave to a brother to a bishop. I know it's Christian history, but I just think that is outstanding news that this is the way God designed it, that everyone should be created equal and everyone should be seen as a brother in the Lord. So what does that mean to us? What is it that we're supposed to do? Well, number one, bad situations demand godly action. And this was a bad situation on both sides. Philemon had something in it that was not right in the way that he treated some people well and he treated other people poorly and Paul called him out on it. You need to start showing kindness to everyone. And the way you do that is by seeing them eternally as your brother in the Lord, your sister in the Lord, as someone who is God's child. And then Onesimus, you need to go back because you weren't very much help. You didn't do the right things and you ran away and probably stole money. You need to go back and do things right. You see, being in a bad situation does not give you permission to not continue to be a good Christian. So even if you're in a bad situation, we are all challenged to continue being godly in all of our actions and all of our decisions. And in this situation, it required three actions. Number one, to fight for godly equality. And Paul was doing that both for Philemon and for Onesimus. We're going to fight for godly equality. We need to see each other differently. We need to view everybody as a brother or a sister in the Lord and treat everyone that way. We need to make sure that everybody goes to heaven and that's what we fight for. And we're going to do it through kindness. We show kindness. Philemon, show kindness. Onesimus, show kindness. Our whole world needs to show kindness and make sure that that's the way that we win people to the Lord and we walk as brothers. You're my brother and I'm yours. And so if something comes in between us, we treat each other well. We don't look down on anybody because of who they are, how they act or what they do. And these are the three actions that we must take. Galatians 3 says it this way. There is no longer a Jew or a Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Once we begin to see that we are all brothers and sisters of the Lord, we were all designed for an eternal relationship with God, it should change the way we see people, the way we treat people, the way we talk to people. And if we see anybody being oppressed or treated less than a son or a daughter of God, we should fight for that to stop and make sure it all changes. And so that's exactly what God is calling us to do. Now, we've said this is our process. We first want to sit down and have conversations. So there may be some of you that out of this message say, I want to get involved. I want to do my part. I want to be a part of these conversations where we sit down and listen to somebody. So if that's you, if you want to get involved, if you want to find a role, here are six names of people that I've been meeting with and we've just started the conversation. Elise and Teddy and Aaron and Aaron and Leslie and Savannah. You can call any one of these and say, add me to the conversation. I want to get involved and I want to see what I can do. I want to just listen and see what it is that God is calling us to do in our city so that we can make a difference, so that everybody has hope of 
uh, eternity, eternal life. And nobody experiences being treated less than the way God designed everybody to be treated. And if you don't have their name or contact number, you can send something to the church building, info at firstcitychurch.org. Savannah will get that and we'll make sure that we get that information out and you join the conversation. Maybe this is the best place to start. Today begins our 21 days of prayer. And over the next 21 days, we're gonna break down Micah 6, you know, verse eight. And all this week, all the prayers center around acting justly. And so we've chosen different verses of the Bible to just talk about how we get involved and make sure that those that are oppressed are set free. And then next week, we'll talk about kindness. And then in the third week, we'll talk about walking humbly with God. I ask you to join us in this effort. I ask you, give your whole heart to God and then help us to make a difference in our community in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that you joined us today. If you don't mind, I wanna pray with you. And then maybe in your homes, you're gonna share communion together. You're gonna to just remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then we're gonna start talking about what it is that he's calling us to do. But I'm so glad we're part of the conversation. Let's pray. Lord God, in the name of Jesus Christ, help us to fight for what is right. You loved us while we were your enemies. While we were fighting against you, you reached out and saved us. You have always treated us like we were your children. You've always run after us, not trying to destroy us. You have never made us feel less than worthy of your love. And Lord God, we are such sinners. I pray, Lord God, that we, 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 you forgive us of our sins and we give ourselves completely to you. We want to be your sons and your daughters. We want to be used for noble, holy, and eternal purposes. So Lord God, I pray that you take us, take our hearts, take our lives, and do with them as you will. And now lead us as we reach out to everyone who needs to go to heaven, who needs to know that you are their loving Father and you have been waiting for them to come home. Bless us on that journey. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you. Have a great week.